And I just remember uh, sort of entering the classrooms that morning when, you know, everybody got the news that I've he had won. I just received a call from Secretary Clinton. And it was just like, it was like chaos. There were kids running around everywhere, sort of yelling their heads about off. us on our victory. They were screaming things like, we're going to get nuked and we're all going to die and <laughs> we're going to have World War Three. And like... Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Global Get Down. I'm your co-host, Teresa. And I'm your co-host, Miguel. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing U.S. foreign policy during what has been one of the more controversial presidential terms in modern American politics. Uh, now, Miguel, I don't know about you, but I pretty vividly remember where I was when Donald Trump won the presidential election in 2016. I was actually in England at the time, and I was working at a school there, and obviously, they were just children and you know what do they know but at the same time it's kind of interesting to think about how the american election it's i mean they're never just about america they affect the whole world and the outcome is important to to everyone even even kids <laughs> and yeah so actually i think that's a really interesting anecdote you brought up about how the kids you met in england were thinking that because trump got elected we were going to see some sort of nuclear war or we were going to see some sort of confrontation between these nuclear powers and I guess this just kind of speaks to the type of politics that Trump engages in. Yeah. Where we'll, we'll see him go on Twitter and criticize other world leaders. And I just think that that's not something that we've come to expect from the leader of the U.S., right? So, but anyway, this is a perfect time, I think, to reflect on his performance, what his foreign policy has been, and what he means or has meant for international politics. So there's plenty of questions we can look at. On the one hand, we can look at regional policy. We can look at U.S.-China relations and how they're as contentious as they've been in decades, really, and how Trump is constantly using them as a scapegoat for a lot of the downfalls in his policies, right? And there's also questions around U.S. efforts in the Middle East. And then I think in the bigger picture, there's perhaps questions surrounding what his behavior is meant for international diplomacy in terms of norms right so right. anyway no shortage of questions to look into today and uh yeah i'm looking forward to it let's go to give us a better idea of how trump's performed in terms of foreign policy we'll be joined today by dr richard price Dr. Price is a professor and head of the Department of Political Science at the University of British Columbia. He specializes in international relations, and his research interests focus on the role of norms in world politics. He has written several books, including Special Responsibilities, Global Problems, and American Power. Dr. Price, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. So back in 2016, you made some general predictions about what a Trump presidency would look like for world politics at the Confronting a Trump Presidency Forum at UBC. And something you had mentioned was how Trump's view of everything is sort of as a business deal and how this might pose some challenges We've for him. We've been ripped off by China. We've been ripped off by, excuse me, Mr. President, the European Union. Um, certainly, as we've seen, he isn't scared to sort of arm twist or issue niceties in favor of getting what he wants. And in particular, he's soured relations with many important allies, for example, by threatening to withdraw support from NATO. 
Um, but how do you think this tough guy approach has been received by the rest of the world? Has it worked to more favorably position the U.S.? Boy, you've got a great memory or you take really great notes. <laughs> but uh, the, I, I think I would refine maybe what I said that, uh, you know, a business approach is one way to characterize it. And uh, um, I mean, all leaders try and strike tough bargains. Uh, so he's, he's not unusual in that sense. What, what is unusual about him is how kind of ruthlessly and exclusively transactional he is in his deals, that he doesn't treat anybody differently because there's some supposed traditional ally. Um, that is one thing that's uh, different. Um, and it's also that he treats everything in a relentlessly zero-sum kind of approach. That is, he doesn't believe that you can enter into deals with multiple partners that everyone will benefit from. He has this incredible, what we call a zero-sum view in, in world politics, that if you're doing a deal, either you gain or you lose. That's all there is to it. And, you know, that's true in some deals, but there are many uh, issues where you have to engage in cooperation across multiple parties, and then you will all benefit. But he literally just doesn't accept that that can never be the case. Um, that's what's really distinctive about his approach. And his, his approach can uh, confer U.S. benefits uh, often insofar as if it's a bilateral negotiation, the U.S. will typically have a preponderance of power and, you know, do really well in that bargaining situation. So uh, I think he's actually, you know, reasonably clever in that regard. But where it falls short is that for anything that is dealt with either, like you uh, referred to, traditional allies or multilateral kinds of issues where it's not just one-on-one -on -one countries, uh, then its approach really has been a spectacular failure, I would say, over the last four years. Right, because I think something that I've noticed, I mean, like you said, with some of his um, approaches to bilateral relations, and is, is sometimes his arm twisting kind of does seem to work in his favor. I mean, he did manage in uh, reducing the U.S.'s commitment to the NATO budget. Um, NATO has now said that other countries, such as Canada and the European countries, will pay more. So that's something that sort of worked in his favor. But then at the same time, I think something that I always come back to and think of is um, that one video from, I think it was December 2019, and it was of Boris Johnson, uh, Macron, and Trudeau um, at this NATO reception, seemingly like talking behind Trump's back. <laughs> sort of complaining about him. And, you know, that was caught on video. And so I think as much as he might be willing to kind of talk sort of impolitely about other people, I mean, I think other world leaders are kind of feeling the same way, even if they don't voice it out loud in public. Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, your question is sort of, you know, has, has his approach worked, you know, favorably for him? And, and it's an interesting question because it literally is all about him for him. Um, he really doesn't seem to care that much about the United States as such. Uh, he only cares about what will enhance his own personal standing and power, uh, perhaps his you know, next electoral uh, chances, uh, his own financial situation and that of his, you know, those he wants to, to enhance, his family and, and others. So, um, you know, in that regard, sure, he's enriched himself and his family a great deal. Um, he hasn't stepped back from his businesses. In fact, he's profited off them. So is his, his family and so on. 
Uh, but it's, you know, a bizarre approach to a presidency um, and one really against, you know, all sort of norms of uh, how you're supposed to disassociate yourself from your private interests from uh, the public interest. Um, most presidents look to cash in after they're on office with their speaking tours and Trump is cashing in now. So, um, you know, it's uh, but, you know, the larger U.S. reputation is in tatters around the world. Uh, it's at historic lows. Uh, if you look at any polls, there was just a recent one that was released. Um, I mean, unbelievably low ratings, both for Trump himself, the, the faith that people have in Trump as an effective leader around the world, but also in the United States, um, uh, really historic lows for that country as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, just what you said about this sort of private interests versus what might be best for the United States. I mean, I think something that I've found interesting is that he will often sort of invoke China as being this, you know, enemy of the United States in terms of um, economic power, political power, military power. Um, but sometimes some of his foreign policy decisions kind of seem to disadvantage the United States, almost in favor of China. So, you know, the USA, for example, they decided to withdraw from the World Health Organization. And, you know, right after that decision, um, Xi Jinping then pledged an additional $2 billion to the organization, seemingly, you know, increasing the influence of China. I mean, another example is um, Trump pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. And that was that was great PR for, for China to then be able to say, well, you know, we're still we're still in it. So Trump's presidency has really witnessed rising tensions between the U.S. and China, probably like never before since relations were normalized in the 70s. You know, he's he's blamed China for the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, he started a trade war and has frequently made out China to be sort of, you know, the, the prime economic uh, and great power rival. Um, but do you think his stance on China is is justified or is it just empty sort of rhetoric designed to appeal to his supporter base? Yeah, you know, if you ask me what, you know, um, what things Trump probably got right in his foreign policy, um, I would say that he's largely got right that uh, China needs to be dealt with as, you know, the chief uh, global competitor for what the world's going to look like over the next 50 years. Um, it's not as if the Obama administration didn't know that, but they tried a, you know, on balance, more cooperative rather than sharply confrontational approach. Um, and you could argue that that wasn't uh, massively successful. Um, Trump bought a much more confrontational approach in, in rhetoric, but also in, in deed and in behavior, as you nicely noted. Um, and what are the results of that? Well, again, I think... Um, I think that approach is largely right in the sense that China has a quite different vision of the world in many respects, uh, particularly things like the nature of political authority. Should the world be, you know, more open and democratic? Well, no. Uh, the, China has a much more sovereigntist and nationalist uh, approach to global affairs. You shouldn't tell other countries what to do with human rights. Indeed, they're trying to reconfigure how the UN thinks about human rights, because those are global commitments. And it's now trying to say, well, it depends on how you do them nationally. <laughs> so it's really trying to any kind of, uh, you know, draw back any kind of universal commitments. Uh, and for understandable reasons, as it's, you know, repressing its Uyghur population and, and so on. So 
Um, even if you know the Trump administration had not been confrontational on the issues it has been, I think a different administration like the Biden one would be confrontational on other issues like the Uyghur and human rights issues, like censorship um, and crackdown in Hong Kong and so on. So I think that uh, regardless of the administration, whether it's a more liberal, democratic one or a more conservative uh, one or a more Trumpian one, I don't really think Trump's a conservative in the classical sense. Um, I think you would still have those uh, frictions. There are areas where there can and should be more cooperation of common interest, um, I think, on, in global trade, in finance, in climate change. Uh, in global health, obviously, in pandemics, uh, there just simply has to be greater cooperation. So the more that confrontation takes over, um, I think it'll have you know very uh, drastic potential effects for all of us the way it has with, with the lack of sufficient cooperation with COVID-19. Um, it's clearly been a failure of, of response at the Chinese national level, but then has channeled through the WHO and in cooperation with, with other nations. So... Um, so I don't think it's been entirely successful. I mean, slapping tariffs on other countries just creates a tariff war and they slap tariffs back and now your soybean and fog, you know, hog farmers are hurt. Uh, did that get you ahead? No. <laughs> and in fact, it probably has hurt his electoral chances by what we can see because countries have been very smart in how they've responded to his tariffs. Uh, they've targeted things that don't just hurt the United States. They target things that hurt Trump voters. Um, that's what they're going after. Um, and so most of the tariffs that he's put, including on China, have been retaliated against in places that hurt Trump. Right. Because I think for me, just sort of given Trump's style of, you know, speaking, um, there's kind of this blurry line sometimes uh, between what is sort of actually um like good points to bring up against Chinese power versus what is maybe just bordering on xenophobic comments or, you know, just taking it to this level that it doesn't it's need to go. away from China as opposed to calling it the Chinese virus. I can name Kung Flu. You know, saying name... things like Kung Flu and the Chinese virus. I mean, it, it sort of, it distorts that message where on the one hand, as you've brought up, you know, it's, it's good to be mindful of this rising power, but then in some ways, Trump kind of delegitimizes that by expressing it in the way that he does. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And what it does is it's a classic case. I've always been kind of confounded how little uh, sort of hardliner type politicians seem to appreciate that those kinds of messages only embolden those they're trying to weaken, right? I mean, what does that kind of rhetoric do? It fosters Chinese nationalism and it rallies support for Chinese leaders who say, hey, we have to be tough against this outside threat. And it's very effective, right? Because <laughs> people see Trump as a threat. Um, so I've always kind of been mystified why, you know, if you did that in quiet, that would be likely help avoid some of those counterproductive tendencies, I think, that help actually help those leaders at home because now they can say, listen, we have to be really tough uh, because we're under threat. And Iran, that's the exact same dynamic that we've seen there over the years uh, and so on. So um, I've always been kind of mystified at why hardliners would use that rhetoric in such explicit public ways because it's uh, almost always surely counterproductive. 
Yeah, so somewhat tied into this discussion of U.S.-Chinese relations and and specifically related to COVID-19, Trump has used, seemed to use China as a scapegoat. I guess my question is, what role do you think the mainstream media has to play in this? Because the, the mainstream media seems to take these comments and run with it, and it it seems to be creating a bit more of a divisive political culture, which is what seems to be unraveling in the U.S. right now. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question because, um, I mean, clearly you cannot expect the mainstream media to not report on, you know, Trump's kind of rhetoric. I mean, it might be harder for, you know, you and Teresa to appreciate, I'm not sure, just, just how unbelievably unusual and anomalous Trump is. I mean, we've lived with him for four years, so, you know, I worry that people will sort of say, well, that's the normal on that side of the political spectrum. There is nothing normal about the way Trump talks about things. I mean, I've never seen anything like it in my lifetime. I really haven't. Uh, a leader of a de democratic uh, country uh, saying the things that he does and the way he does, I've never seen anything like it. Um, and, you know... For his supporters, it's refreshing because, you know, you study political science, you're used to a lot of sort of cynicism and hypocrisy and, oh, politicians always say this, but we know that, you know, Machiavelli teaches us they're doing things for other reasons, right? Um, and we all know that to an extent, but Trump says things in public that a lot of people wouldn't even say in private, right? He carries it to an entirely different degree. Uh, with all kinds of, I think, you know, consequences. If if you thought that politicians, you know, kind of telling mild untruths and always cover, covering things up with that diplomatic language that says nothing, if you thought that was bad, well, no, it would, compare it to, to this, right? Because um, a lot of people are like, oh, you know, diplomats and politicians, they always have these boilerplate things. They say nothing about what's really going on and politics is all hypocrisy and so on. Um, and yeah, there's there's a fair bit of that. That's the regular routine. But but what Trump does now, uh, and the amplifier that he gets from the media, which you've pointed to, Miguel, uh, is in my view been uh, really harmful for helpful norms of diplomacy, of politics, that even if they're very imperfectly realized, at least if people are speaking that these things matter even as often they're undercutting them, but sometimes they do support them as well. But now Trump explicitly just rejecting them. Um, that's different, right? And this is all a great case study, I think, his presidency of which of these kinds of norms and ways of doing things are resilient and may recover from the Trump presidency. Uh, because the media, uh, I would actually point Miguel more or less to the mainstream media, um, and more to social media has been the great difference of his presidency, right? He's the Twitter president, um, you know, sitting there at two in the morning and firing off, you know, 20 tweets of, you know, these crazy, often contradictory uh, ideas that pop into his head. Um, and then don't forget about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I mean, Trump has found a powerful ally in uh, Facebook and Zuckerberg because uh, he wants to spread, you know, an unprecedented amount of lies by a factor of like a thousand in his presidency. Um, 
has been really meticulously and well documented. It's it's fascinating, if incredibly depressing to read uh, the lack of respect for truth that Trump has. But then somebody like Mark Zuckerberg, he doesn't want to be regulated his his platform either. So they have a really powerful coincidence of interests. Um, and then when you combine it with you know the you know, Russian and other countries' efforts to use those platforms. Uh, for their own purposes, undercutting, you know, U.S. democracy and so on. Uh, for me, it's actually the social media, which has been the biggest amplifier of what Trump has done, uh, because there is no sort of control. The mainstream media, I guess Fox now counts as mainstream somehow. Um, they're, you know, a broadcast media. They have, they have TV news, news programs. Um, it used to be the mainstream media, you didn't hear the really wacky voices out there, right? If, if you really wanted to find them, you could you could dig, but you could easily not hear them. But it's less on mainstream media, though Fox does, I think, in particular, produce a lot of uh, very extreme views. Uh, but it's social media that amplifies those. And, and those are the views of Trump and the ones that he likes to amplify, right? White supremacists. When, when did we hear that before you know, out of a presidency before, you know, social media. Um, and when did we hear, I mean, we didn't hear that sort of thing. So uh, he's retweeting stuff from white supremacist groups, right? And, and some of these things. So that has become, I think, a, a place of transmission uh, for um, a lot of the things that Trump has, has either legitimized or delegitimized, depending on, you know, right. the issue. And I mean, considering that he's been, such a spectacle and often treated as a spectacle by media. You know, I've, I've probably seen like a ridiculous amount of articles sort of, you know, asking why he's so orange, for example. Um, but do you think that he's sort of been given a fair assessment of his of his foreign policy, like in general, or is media just totally polarized one side or the other? Um, I mean, actually, if, if, if I had to kind of add it up, I would say that he has wrought... Um, far more damage in a way um, domestically in the US than internationally. Um, I thought he would have been an even bigger wrecking ball internationally than he's been. Um, I mean, he's pulled out from Paris Climate Accords. Well, symbolically, that's incredibly important. And the Biden presidency, his platform has all kinds of different things uh, that would really reverse the US position and try and forward that agenda. But at the end of the day, the Paris Accords are going to make no meaningful dent on dealing with climate change. So Trump pulling the U.S. out, actually, at the end of the day, is not a massively consequential event for what's actually going to happen, right? Right. Um, right. Similarly, he called NATO obsolete. He hasn't pulled the U.S. out of NATO yet. Um, there are people who worry, including John Bolton, that if he had a second term, he probably would. That would be a really significant shift. But he hasn't done it yet. And so on. So his rhetoric has been, you know, much more uh, revolutionary than a lot of what has actually happened as a result of what he's done. Whereas in the U.S. domestic scene, I think he's been an absolute wrecking ball to uh, the U.S. constitutional uh, liberal democracy. Uh, his support for white supremacists, 
is uh, ignoring of laws left, right, and center uh, has been enabled by the Republican Senate. They've not taken him to task on any of these things that a president is not supposed to do, right from his first week in office, where he's supposed to give up his business interests. He said, no, thanks, I'm keeping those. And on it went, right? I mean, he, he correctly read that he was going to get a free pass from uh, Mitch McConnell uh, and his majority control of the Senate, and he has run with it. Um, so that has knock-on effects internationally because the more the U.S. shifts to an authoritarian kind of state, um, I think the, the darker the prospects for democracy around the world. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so I actually, I thought that uh, your comment about social media was, was right on because for the past four years, all I can think about is just how, how much his rhetoric through social media is actually emboldening his supporter base. And it just kind of reminds me of, of um, when he tweeted about Kim Jong-un and uh, calling him Rocket Man. But j just the fact that it seems like his his rhetoric through social media has been a source for the divisiveness more so than his policy has been. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. So I wanted to switch gears towards regional policy now. Trump's been pretty active within the Middle East throughout the past four years. And just to name a few, he's taken his hardline approach with the U.S. and Iran relations and um He's also advanced his counterterrorism efforts within Syria and Afghanistan by deploying more troops and then more recently withdrawing those troops. In terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, he's proposed a vision for a peace agreement earlier this year. And more recently, just last month, the U.S. mediated Arab-Israeli normalization deals between the UAE and Israel, which has been championed by the Trump administration and I guess quite reasonably so, because the UAE is actually now the first Gulf Arab League member to normalize relations with Israel. So my question for you is, in light of this, how should Trump's foreign policy in the Middle East be assessed? Or in other words, how has his foreign policy affected the Yeah, I mean, those are great questions and obviously important and pivotal ones, given uh, how much influence goings on in that region have had really uh, widespread for world politics in so many ways. Uh, you raised a number of them. Um, you know, I'm not a Middle Eastern expert, so I don't know a lot of the details of some of these developments, but a, a general um, view, I mean, I mean, to be fair to Trump, I mean, all of these issues are things that he inherited that are not, you know, he didn't bring them about. Um, virtually all of them will persist past his presidency. Um, the United States, despite its incredibly active role in that region, uh, has had limited ability to, you know, quote unquote, solve the problems, you know. Um, and so there's always these expectations that somehow the U.S. is supposed to be some big fixer in the region when more often than not, it's been the cause of the problems with, you know, uh, so many of the aftermath uh, challenges after the 2003 war in Iraq, for example, and, and on and on. I mean, you know, deposing um, the leader in Iran, which has had this, you know, incredibly lasting legacy uh, uh, throughout the region and so on. So, um, and as for what Trump has done and, and what she sort of listed, um, 
I would say that in general, his supposed, you know, maximum pressure uh, policy has failed. It's failed to moderate Iran's behavior by anybody's sort of uh, assessment, uh, the, the behaviors that the administration wanted to change. Uh, it's broken past the um, limitations on the Iran nuclear agreement. So Iran is closer to, uh, you know, a nuclear capability than it was before he came to office. That's just a failure at the end of the day, it's pure and simple. Um, and everybody predicted that's what would happen. So, um, uh, but, you know, he just doesn't believe in international agreements and that Iran would abide by them. So uh, <laughs> you get what you, you know, pay for as far as his policy. Um, his policy in terms of, uh, I mean, you know, one thing is he hasn't started any new wars, uh, in, including in that region. Um, and um, he did conduct, uh, you know, uh, some noted attacks against the Iranian general, for example. Um, the attacks um, in Syria and Iraq have, uh, as far as we think, probably killed a lot more civilians uh, because he's been a lot more indiscriminate with his uh, use of weaponry in those regions. But at the same time, we get no information about it. So it's really unclear, but uh, human rights organizations suggest that the toll on civilian populations in those areas have been far higher than they were under the Obama administration. Uh, but nobody talks about that. Um, and I'm not really, well, I, I guess I know why, because there's so many other things to talk about with the Trump administration, perhaps, that gets people's uh, attention. Um, you know, with troops in Afghanistan, um, he's now just recently pledged to bring them home by Christmas. Um, this caught, apparently, his own, you know, military uh, on the back foot, as he's often done. Um, they don't think they can do it safely, is what I've heard. Uh, they need, you know, a proper uh, strategy that's well thought out, but that's not how uh, Trump makes decisions. So, um, and, you know, there was a much ballyhooed approach with the Palestinians. We're going to reset Israeli-Palestinian and Jared's going to be in charge. Well, no, <laughs> no surprise there. But, you know, like I said, nobody else has, has reset those relations either. So. The uh, Trump administration is hardly unique in that regard. Uh, and my understanding of uh, the UAE and Israel is that that had very little to do with the Trump administration. They'll claim credit for it, but uh, that they virtually had, had you know, no effect on, on mediating that. And, um, but again, I'm, I'm not an expert on those, so somebody might correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I don't suspect Joe Biden's going to be any particularly more successful uh, in that region. Um, whether he will be more uh, activist, I would be very surprised. I think he has more of a, the U.S. as an international leader uh, vision of the U.S. role in the world. Uh, but I don't think there's going to be a, a stomach for the U.S. increasing its involvement in the region. And Trump has really, you know, pulled the U.S. back on balance for the most part, which is probably, you know, healthy for the region not to have the U.S. meddling as much. Um, for the most part, uh, although it'll, you know, reset balances to be sure. So yeah. just to move on and get to some of the student questions that our URSA members submitted. So the first question is um, a submission from Daniel Jacinto, a graduate student here at UBC. Uh, his question is, what impact do you think the Trump administration has had or a second Trump administration will have on the prevailing norms underpinning the international system? 
Yeah, I mean, as I we have part of our earlier conversation, we've we've talked about how Trump has really been an unprecedented norm breaker par excellence, right? Uh, even more in rhetoric than indeed, but but in practice and behavior, he's he's uh, followed through on uh, dismissing a lot of international norms. Um, and if he was to get a second uh, uh, administration, then he would. He has no reason not to continue that in his own view. I mean, he doubles down every time, uh, you know, he gets harsh criticism on on one of his decisions. So, um, you know, and it's from little things like, you know, refusing to shake, you know, Merkel's hand at the White House. Um, the State Department for 50 years would give daily briefings. They don't give those briefings. Uh, he doesn't read intelligence reports. I mean, it's just a shocking kind of <laughs> daily things about the responsibilities of being a, a politician. But then there are big things, right? Uh, saying, yeah, uh, NATO's obsolete and we might not come to the aid of a member if they were attacked. That's a massive shift in, in an, an international norm that's really been the foundation of the global order since World War II. Uh, well, NATO came a little later, so five years after that or so, as that started to uh, develop. Um, you know, his flip of U.S. conservatives, who had traditionally been rabidly anti-Soviet and then Russian, to suddenly being, you know, you know, don't criticize Russia and Putin, he's our guy. Uh, and that's part of a general transition to explicitly embracing authoritarian leaders and authoritarian uh, policies. And again, we shouldn't overestimate the difference because the U.S. has always supported authoritarian leaders around the world and horrible ones, right, who have done terrible things to their uh, citizenry. Um, but the U.S. has also countered some of those authoritarian leaders and, at least in rhetoric, has also supported human rights um, and criticized some of those leaders for those things, whereas Trump explicitly embraces uh, people like Duterte in the Philippines and his extrajudicial killings. Um, you know, when Bin Salman and, and Saudi Arabia, uh, he brags in his book that he helped get Congress off his back for killing Jamal Khashoggi, arranging the death of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, as is alleged, and so on. So that's been a dramatic shift uh, and a kind of, you know, norm-breaking uh, sort of thing. Um, there have been norms that I want to point out that he hasn't broken or indeed that he's upheld international ones, again, that I don't think anybody's paying attention to. One is torture. Uh, you may recall he came to office and waterboarding, I'm going to do way worse than that. Um, hasn't happened. Um, there was massive pushback within the military and the CIA because they knew they would be the ones prosecuted if it happened. So they said, you know, as it was, was famously said early on, get your own bucket, Mr. President, because we're not going to do it for you. <laughs> Um, but another one was um, Trump was uh, the only leader in world history who led attacks against a country that used chemical weapons. So two attacks of chemical weapons by Syria. Uh, the U.S. attacked uh, Syria in response. And the second time, uh, uh, Britain and France joined them. Um, that's really quite astonishing. Um, and in my view, um, if the world can't stop countries from using weapons of mass destruction, we're in really big trouble. Um, so I give Trump an enormous amount of credit. Uh, he did what I thought Obama should have done. Uh, I thought Obama should have used force. Uh, he did not. Um, and um, 
So, you know, he has upheld a couple of norms, or at least not violated in the case of torture, as far as we know, um, which is quite interesting, even if it's less because of him, but it's because no one would do it for him in the case of torture. But uh, I'm sure he could have found somebody to do it if he, you know, gave an explicit order to, to let the gloves off, as Dick Cheney famously uh, allegedly did. For sure. And I mean, you've kind of you've kind of touched on a few things already. But I mean, if you had to pick, like, what would you say has been Trump's best foreign policy choice and worst foreign policy choice? Hmm. Well, best, I think I alluded to earlier, he hasn't started any new wars. Um, and most American presidents started some new military engagement somewhere at some point. Um, so and that's, and that's been kind of surprising, right? But it, it's part and parcel of, of his vision of withdrawing America from being engaged in the world. Why are we, you know, do meddling in everybody's affairs and spending all this money for these people he doesn't personally care about? He literally doesn't. So why are we there? Uh, so at least he hasn't started any wars. Um, I do think that he was right to kind of pivot to China as being the focus as, you know, what's the world going to look like? China has an enormous amount of influence already, and it will only increase. And he has focused, you know, everybody's attention on that. Uh, we earlier discussed he may not have done it in the most productive way in the short term, um, but China's having an enormous amount of influence on in how the world is going to shape up. How, what's the internet going to look like? Uh, what's protection for journalists and free speech uh, going to look like? And uh, intellectual property protections and all these things. Uh, so I think that was right uh, to do. Um, in terms of, you know, what are his biggest uh, failures? Um, <laughs> that's a really long list. <laughs> um, I think it, at, a, at a broad level, um, I think he's largely mistaken in his, um, you know, just general approach that we really began the, the broadcast with, which is uh, this relentlessly transactional approach, which I see more as a zero-sum approach, because it disenables the United States from ever contributing productively to issues that simply need multilateral cooperation, right? And what better example than COVID-19, right? This cannot be done by, you know, nationalist approaches uh, as effective as it would be if it's globally coordinated. That's just a fact. Same with climate change, right? Uh, we face global problems uh, that uh, require a certain amount of international coordination. Um, and Trump's uh, instinctual uh, retraction from that, retreat from that, has been, I think, damaging. And we see the consequences literally right before our eyes. Uh, I worry about global finance in the short term with the economic downturn from the pandemic as well. He's not, you know, being a global leader saying, let's make sure the globals, you know, uh, globe's finances are going to be stable through all this. He's just absent from it. There are no talks uh, being led by uh, the world's top financial power. Uh, so at that general level, that's been uh, the biggest, uh, I think, failure. And then there's specific manifestations of that, right? We've talked about the failure of withdrawing from the Iran nuclear deal. Iran is further ahead than it would have been under the deal. Um, he's sanctioning international criminal court officials. Uh, that's a really bad thing from the perspective of international criminal law in the long run. 
uh, withdrawal from you know funding in the WHO, that's a disaster, even though the WHO was hardly a well-functioning organization, uh, but now it will be an even more poorly functioning uh, organization. Um, and then, um, you know, his, his, his racist and anti-immigrant nationalist rhetoric, I think that has been globally damaging because one of the world's most powerful states is abetting uh, sort of global racism and the rise of global racism and legitimating it. That, you know, when he came to office, that was one of my greatest uh, worries. And it's come to pass that he would legitimate uh, those sort of, you know, voices that were on the margins um, of, you know, overt racism and so on. And they have come out um, and they're not shy about being uh, out in public uh, compared to where they were four years ago in the U.S., but also, you know, generally globally, uh, his support of sort of that right wing populism. Um, so those have been things that uh, worry me greatly, you know, the shift to authoritarianism and, and democracy. It's all kind of part of a, a big package of things of what he stands for. So as we bring this discussion to a close, I'd like to ask you one last forward-looking question. So I know you, you touched on a bit in terms of what you think a Biden administration would do. I'll be a president who will stand with our allies and friends and make it clear to our adversaries the days of cozying up to dictators is over. So my final question is, what do you see as most at stake in the realm of foreign policy in the upcoming election? I guess I would say maybe two things. Uh, one, I would just build on what I said about the ability of the world to achieve things that are in a common interest, such as you know global health and pandemics, things that don't respect borders. Uh, I do think that that is what is at stake. Um, um, but the second, the, the big thing, I think it's really up for grabs in terms of kind of, you know, outward looking effect on the world of this election is the nature of our political authority uh, in the, the, you know, long, medium uh, term. Uh, there has been a, a backlash against democracy uh, and there's been a retreat of democracy, depending, no matter how you measure it. Um, it's been very clear over the last uh, decade or so, and it's been uh, given acceleration by Trump and his political inclinations. Uh, for Trump, rules are for suckers. Um, and that's how he's lived his professional life, and he's had a certain amount of success doing that. So why would he think otherwise? But in general, you know, the support for things like anti-immigration policies that are pretty explicitly racist in nature, um, authoritarian movements, uh, the lack of respect for truth and journalists, um, and indeed calling journalists, you know, the enemy of the state. Um, these are all part of a package of an authoritarian move in politics. It's anti-liberal, it's anti-democratic, and that I think is probably in my mind, along with, you know, these multilateral uh, problems that we need to address, is what's really at stake in this election, is, is that right-wing populist um, movement going to be given another, you know, big boost? Or is it going to be dealt a sharp blow saying, you know, this is rejected. This is not the politics we want going forward. Um, that, for me, is what's really at stake in this election. Yeah, well, on behalf of Teresa and I and the rest of our podcast team, we'd just like to thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a pleasure hearing your insights and anticipating the upcoming election with your insights in mind and you just 
appreciate your your thoughts thank you